0: This is season three of the Broke Architect podcast. This podcast has now been referenced in keynote speeches at Arabia HQ, Architects Journal, BD Online and GB News. Should you wish to sponsor this podcast, please contact me at globalarchitectalliance.com.
1: They asked me how much I earn and they're like, oh, there's no way you're going to find anything if you ever lose this job. What are you talking about? They're like, if you want the salary, you have to be having at least 15 years of experience. This is like associate or senior level, so we can't really find anything for you. And I'm like, going back again to this initial thought, I'm like, how sad is that? Like, what is my future like? Am I now going to be like penny-pinching penny because people are gonna be like, oh, now you don't have 15 years of experience, but you only have 13 years of experience, and then because of that, we're gonna give you less, and that was really disappointing to hear. Architects always try to balloon their school or do more. It's almost we like conditioned an architecture school to suffer. It's like, unless you suffered and you didn't sleep, and then you're lazy or you're a bad architect. like. Uh, working backwards or shape-up, essentially they always try to reduce the scope. They try to see how we can get there doing less. Try being in tech because I felt like architecture is too slow to adopt new things. And I I wanted to grow, I wanted to learn, I wanted to develop professionally, but I almost like I couldn't. Instance, it has to be more tech enabled. We have to be open-minded to let AI help us. No one tells you AI will draw a building for you. No one is even closely to, no AI is close to doing that. But why can't you let AI sort through your database and help you pull the reference quickly? Go enable the day-to-day task list. You know, let it it co-pilot you. Let it suggest you a detail that you already have in your data database. When you draw why can't we do that?
0: I have with me today Natalia Bakiva, who is an architect and entrepreneur and lives in Toronto, Canada. And Natalia is an immigrant to Canada and has trained hard to become a licensed architect, but then has pivoted into tech. And one reason being that it pays a hell of a lot more. So, We have lost another architect to tech, or have we? Let's find out. Firstly, welcome to the third season of the Brock Architect podcast. And I just want to ask, how are you today?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you, Jason. It's nice to be here.
0: Great, wonderful. I mean, this this is the first question I always start with, and I really want to know if you can tell me a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and why did you want to study architecture?
1: That's a great question. Thank you, Jason. Uh, so my name is Natalia. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Um, you know, my story is very kind of long and I think um, diverse in a way. I met many great people along this journey. I was originally born in the far east of Russia, uh, which is, funny enough, uh, about four and a half hours drive from North Korean border and uh, about two and a half hours to the Chinese border. And... If you can imagine, uh, the flight to Tokyo is shorter than the flight to the next large city in Russia. Wow! Uh, so it's it's a very <laughs> yeah I know it's a very unique place, and I feel like people who live in that region they feel more identified with cultures which are across the border rather than the country that they live in. Uh, So that definitely definitely impacted me a lot. So, you know, I studied Japanese, I studied English, you know, I was always kind of, I don't want to say being international, but more like my father was working abroad and he always had this open mind that maybe um, I can one day live abroad and maybe the languages would something that would enable me if I choose to. Even my name, you know, they called me Natalia because they thought the name was international, so no matter which country I end up living in, people would be able to pronounce my name. Uh, So I grew up there, uh, and I went to the technical university there, where I started actually not as an architect, funny enough, but as an environmental design specialist. At that time, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's interesting, it, like I think about it now, it's, it's even hard to imagine. At that time, it was perceived that architecture was for guys, and for girls, you have to go to all other uh, professions under this uh, architecture school umbrella. So, we had architecture, urban design, we had environmental design, interior design, graphic design, and the history of art. So from that roster, you can choose. And essentially, when I went to the prep courses, which are um, one year before you graduate high school, you start kind of going to university because the exams that we have to take, they're very technical and very difficult. If you're not prepared, most likely you won't be able to pass those exams. And essentially, through these classes, we were always told as, like, the man would go to architecture, and everybody else, the girls would go to everything else. Which I kind of, you know, at that time, I was very young, I was 16, so I chose to go to environmental design. Very quickly, I realized that I prefer architecture. And instead of going and finishing professional degree, so we call it, which is six years at that time, now they changed it to seven years, I had an option to switch to bachelor. And I graduated after four and a half years, and I also switched to architecture and urbanism because by the time I became older, by the time I was in my 20s, I was like, "Yes, you don't tell me what to do. (laughs) I'm going to study whatever I want. (laughs) I changed to architecture and urban design and never regretted a larger project, larger scope, bigger impact. I always uh, was striving for it.
0: Okay, and you've taken me on that journey for when you were in Russia at the time, but can you talk me through this relocation and what impact that ha- had on your education? Because you, you you live in Canada.
1: Yeah, that's true. Uh, again, again, quite a journey. Even though I was able to kind of switch my path a little bit, graduated with architecture degree, I always uh, wanted to see more what else is out there. You know, Vladivostok is a great city, it's a port city, so there's a lot of cultures there a lot of uh, you know people coming in traveling it's a it's a big hub in the same time it's still quite remote just location wise it's just very very far and essentially I had few options and that's in my city at that time we would have recruits who would recruit to universities it would be Australia Canada and New Zealand so I knew that I probably would want to go and just explore, see if I can maybe go to college there or just travel and kind of decide for myself. I decided to go to Canada. It's an interesting kind of twist to the story because I was enrolled in college in Canada after my bachelor. And uh, everything was already kind of set for and I was supposed to go and start in September. In the summer, I was supposed to again take like a college prep course where you learn how to write essays, whatever, for international students. And then at the same time, in Moscow, there was a new school opening up, which was the joint school between uh, London Metropolitan University and the Moscow School of Architecture. It was a new school. They had great like advertisement. The best architects of Russia and Europe were about to start teaching there. You would graduate with the degree from UK and not from Russia. It was all kind of like new and very fresh, kind of unfolding at the same time. And it's funny because my family, again, they were like, what is this? Like, are you going to graduate without a degree? Like, are you going to go to master's? And then the diploma is not going to be the standard, which is in the country you study, but different standards. So they're very skeptical. Yeah. But yet, yet again, I, I decided to go and see uh, the interview. Uh, so, on my way to Canada, when I was supposed to already start studying there, I was like, you know, when you travel from Vladivostok to Toronto, you still need to go through Moscow. I was like, okay, I'm going to just have a layover in Moscow. I took my giant portfolio, which is like A2. I was like on the plane with my portfolio. Um, and I went to the interview and I was like, like I'm, I'm here. I might as well try. So I went to the interview and they were very progressive. They were very forward-looking architects. And they saw some of my projects. And I remember (laughs) the question from the dean of the school was like, do they make you do this type of work? (laughs) And I was like, I never (laughs) could understand what he meant. But I mean, they, they, they did not like the approach of the architecture that was taught and, you know, standard. And essentially, I got in. So I now had two offers. I had an offer from great master's program with the very high potential to graduate with European degree and I had a college in Canada which for me at that time was a bit of a kind of downgrade because college um, it was a architectural technology so it's more about gaining the skill in drafting learning tools kind of production focused type of degree mm. which for me at that time was just a bridge to stay in Canada So essentially, I decided to still go to Canada, spend the summer there, see if I like it and take the master's degree and decide afterwards whether I want to stay in Russia, whether I want to go to UK and live there or return to Canada. So I spent the summer in Toronto and then I started my master's uh, in Moscow in the same year. Very quickly, I realized that I liked Toronto a lot and I was was grateful that I had a chance to see it before I had to make this uh, very pivotal decision. At the same time, my master's was fantastic and it was absolutely kind of life-changing for me because everything that I was taught in post-Soviet classical education uh, was very different from what I learned afterwards. Uh, So these two layers really helped me to kind of shape myself as a professional. Um, And after I graduated my master's, um, I came back to Toronto.
0: Wow, what a story. I mean, that's incredible. Did you know before you studied architecture what architects actually made? I mean, I ask this of everyone, really. And if you didn't, when did that penny drop that we're fairly poorly paid compared to other professions?
1: Great question, Jason. I've been kind of reflecting on this in in past years, just because once you start working in the multidisciplinary teams eventually the question of, you know, salaries. So how do you guys function? How things in your field actually operate, come up, right? Those questions are inevitable. You start chatting with, you know, your peers from sales or from marketing or from IT or whatever. I never at the time, thought about money in any way. And I'm not coming from a wealthy family or anything like that. You know, everyone in the Soviet Union was equally poor. (laughs) Equal and equally poor. By no means had other sources of, you know, kind of income in the future or anything like that. But I think I was so driven and so kind of like almost obsessed by design that when I got in architecture school, because I was also a bit of an outsider, a lot of uh, my peers who were enrolled with me, they went to art school, they had their giant portfolios, they had like so many great um, pieces that they created by the time they were 16. And I was always artistically inclined, but I never actually was exposed to proper academia and art and like let's do it a certain way. I, I just liked it and um, that was kind of my, my kind of angle to it. When I got in architecture school, it was definitely, uh, it was a big event for me because it was not that easy to get in. And I was just happy to start going. Like, I was just happy to get going and start working. I I was so obsessed with the design work. I almost uh, tried to always disregard other subjects and like, you know, we had this theoretical mechanics, we have math, we have structure, because like, again, this post-Soviet education is very different. It's very fundamental. There's a lot of really tough and really heavy subjects that we had to study. And I was almost like failing all of them. I just wanted to be in a studio. I was so driven. So going back to the question about the pay, it was never on the table. I just really wanted to do this profession, I wanted to become an architect. And you know, when my parents were kind of, I guess, challenging me on this a little bit, um, because they wanted me to study economy. They wanted me to study international affairs. I had languages. So they wanted me to maybe become uh, more like Eastern studies using my Japanese language at the time and English. You know, I knew that I didn't want to do any of that. I didn't have a doubt for a split second. I was hundred percent going all in and it's almost at that time I was so young that I didn't even think about the salary or any of the future implications. I just like, that's what I'm doing now. And then everything else is kind of like out of my radar in terms of the salary. And when the penny dropped, like you said, it's, uh, more recent years because coming to a new country as an immigrant, and canada is one of the friendlier countries for immigration but still it's a very long and tough process to go through and i think only after i got my paperwork i got my passport i got my residency only after that those thoughts they start to kick in because before that for first like 5 years it's it's a bit of a survival mode right you need to get your work permit you need to get your study permit you need and uh, coming from russia now it's even worse than before, but even at the time, 10 years ago, when I did come here, it was very challenging because it's one of the countries that have the hardest visa requirements in the world. But when I started realizing uh, the salary um, situation and kind of seeing the industry overall and talking to people more, because I don't know how it's for you, Jason, or how it's done in UK, but we hear have in our contracts written that you're not supposed to discuss your salary in the office. You're not supposed to talk about how much you earn. And that's actually a big issue because people feel like they cannot discuss salary. It's kind of a big taboo. But eventually, you know, you find your ways, you kind of start maybe making better friends in the office or outside the office. And you can you can actually ask those hard questions. When I start realizing, not for me, that maybe I'm not making as much as other industries. But I think the realization kicked in when I saw the partners or the senior architects, how much they're making. And that's when I thought, okay, so I'm going to be working for next 10 years, all the time working, long hours, very stressful. And then in 10 years, that's how much I'm going to get. I'm like, this is not very encouraging. And I think that's when I start realizing that mixing a couple of skills or going multidisciplinary might be a better solution, might be a better offering that in today's world, professions like architecture being very fundamental, sometimes to their own detriment.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I just want to do a follow-on question really to this. You know, you would think that an architect in 2024 – could have a reasonable life in Canada a house a family money in the bank you know but is this possible and maybe you can you can kind of talk about you know your other friends who are architects i mean do they have that
1: i mean jason in terms of toronto today it's um it's a bit of a challenge overall i don't think it's even only for architects are facing the challenge of not being able to afford a house forget about the house <laughs> no one can afford a house here uh-huh. uh if you're talking about downtown that's for sure it's it's very inaccessible uh there are, again a lot of immigrants right so there are people who are coming and building wealth from zero here so to catch up from zero and also being able to chase the inflation chase the growing interest rates, chase the cost of the real estate, which is completely being hit up by even more immigrants coming in, it's like a never-ending chase, right? So if we're talking about the house, that's definitely something that people typically have to move outside of the city for. And it's sad because now a lot of my friends, they, they live in suburbia, they have space, but I never see them anymore because they're just like too far. In terms of the kind of balance i think living in a downtown today you have to make a sacrifice i guess so if you want to be central you have to sacrifice the space you have to be happy with the little what you have in terms of like expenses from my friends i see they're doing okay if they have some other things going on so essentially i think what i Gathered over the years is that you have to have another hustle in a way that you either have a side business, or maybe you do projects on the side, maybe you have a YouTube channel, maybe you have a business that is unrelated to architecture, and that will help you get extra income. It's so sad to say, but sometimes I, I feel and I think about architecture is like it would be a great hobby because. <laughs> The hobby that you need to study for nine years or more for make architecture, whether you're a business owner or whether you're employee into like this cash generating machine, it's not an easy task. Sometimes when I work, I feel maybe it's an impossible task. I don't know. Some people definitely figured it out. It's definitely a constant ongoing struggle. And yes, a lot of people complain about it. They would choose apartments over houses, and they would try to move between firms, start gaining more, because every time you switch your job, there is opportunity to ask for a raise. Once you settled, they never give you a raise. In architecture firms here, to get a 2 3% raise is considered to be standard or good. Sometimes you don't get any raises at all.
0: And that's not even keeping up with inflation, let's just say. Is this why you started your own practice? Because you did.
1: I think for me, it was a few things. Looking for different ways to leverage the knowledge, to have a different stream of income in a way. I think also, since I was 16, I started architecture school, I was always dreaming about this. Uh, I don't want to say authority, it's more about autonomy. I wanted to make my own decisions. And I'm talking about both design decisions and operation decisions. I just wanted to have a of my own. I wanted to be able to express myself and express my skills in the way I wanted to do. The transition happened during the pandemic. I realized that even I was working at a great architecture firm, you know, they gave me great projects. They wanted me to be a design lead at the firm and they saw a lot of potential in me. You know, everything on paper looked great, but I was I just didn't feel like it's my thing. There's something that is missing. That's how I first time looked into the side of tech and that's how that time I quit my job and it was super painful because I'm still in touch with that firm and they're great people but I, I kind of needed the change for myself I needed to see what else I'm capable of I mean my, granted my salary increased 45 percent <laughs> when I went <laughs> when, to, when I went to work for a tech startup and benefits and shares and you know bonuses <laughs> like you name it uh, so that was a nice change as well but I wanted to test myself and see kind of where skill set that I gained can actually fit into the requirements of the firm that has not only design, but in the, that prop tech startup, we had sales, we had marketing, we had customer journey, we had software engineering team, we had construction team. So it was a very kind of comprehensive and uh, large entity. And essentially, I was so overwhelmed when I started. I was sitting in those calls and uh, I felt like, you know, my head will explode because it just was so much information. And now you're dealing with people who are not architects who speak the same language. Are there people who are asking you, but why do we need to get a building permit? Why do we need to draw this? So they completely don't don't have any idea of what's going on here. That was a a huge challenge. At the same time, it kind of helped me grow this company unfortunately stopped existing because they couldn't secure another venture funding round and you know, the typical startup stuff. I just realized I don't want to go back to architecture firm. I was like, I tried this, you know, I already took the risk and I don't feel like at this point of time, I want to go back. That kind of gave me a really good platform to start my own practice because the mindset was right. I already have people approaching me and asking whether i can help them with some designs and uh, that's how that's how kind of a lot of those uh, components met in the middle while i was also in a prop tech startup essentially i was the lead of the department so i was the first architect who came in uh there were a couple before but they they were no longer there i came in and we didn't have any standards we didn't have any processes And I had to basically with the team create it all from zero. So it was really good practice for me to almost establish my own firm while being inside of someone else's entity. So I've done all this and I'm like, maybe it's not as hard as I thought. So naturally from there, I was like, I can do it. I had more belief in myself. I felt like I had more strength to execute it. I did it for a couple of years before starting a tech company. I think that uh, reality very quickly kicked in, the design autonomy was there, the decision making was there, but I again found myself in a chase where you selling your time for money as a consultant and there's only 24 hours in a day.
0: You might have already answered this, but I'm going to ask you again and just think about the pivotal moment. You know, can you share the pivotal moment or realization that led you to transition from architecture? So you started your own practice, then you, you decided to move into the tech industry. And I'm also interested in, I think you mentioned it, you know, the increase in salary, was that part of it? The financial considerations.
1: I think there are a few things there. When I was already at the prop tech startup, I was the lead architect there and the recruiters keep still reaching out to me and, you know, I'm always talking to recruiters, not so much for me. Sometimes, you know, I have friends for looking, so I never decline a recruiter call. I try to kind of make friends with them and just like talk about the industry what's happening that's kind of my way to get a bit of an update when they were reaching out and i'm like guys i'm not looking but at the same time let's let's chat and they asked me how much i earn and they're like oh there's no way you're gonna find anything if you ever leave this job what are you talking about if you want the salary you have to be having at least 15 years of experience and this is like associate to senior level so we can't really find anything for you thought I'm like how sad is that like what is my future like am I now going to be penny pinching because people are going to be like oh now you don't have 15 years of experience but you only have 13 years of experience and then because of that we're going to give you less and kind of that was really disappointed to hear and then I think the second piece to it is uh, when I was at the startup incubator which was more recent it was last year I start talking to software engineers and people who are solution architects, working in IT, software engineers, like all sorts of tech people. And I realized that a lot of them have bachelor degrees. Some of them have bachelor and master's, but mostly it's about four years of education. And these people earn exponentially more while working exponentially less. And again, it's no one's fault. It's not our fault or their fault. They're doing great. They're killing it. But I was like, why are we doing this to ourselves? Not to compare architects with software engineers. Obviously, it's a completely different industry. But I noticed another thing while interfacing with them more is that architects always try to balloon their school or do more. It's almost like we conditioned an architecture school to suffer. It's like, unless you suffered and you didn't sleep, and then you're lazy or you're a bad architect. Or if there is one mistake, that's it, you're a failure. For them, software engineering and tech company mentality, one of the things that we implement day-to-day called uh, working backwards or shape-up, essentially, they always try to reduce the scope. They try to see how we can get there doing less. And if we need to build out more, we can do it later. For architects, it's almost like, we said we're gonna do this much, but then we added more, 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 and then now we burn through all the hours, everybody's exhausted, and the client isn't happy. So once I start kind of putting this all together, maybe there is something wrong, not with me, not with how I do things, but maybe the profession in general needs to get a little bit updated or catch up. While it's catching up, I'm gonna do something else just for now, because I only have one life. So <laughs> um, you might as well you might as well try. Uh, so that was my my take on it.
0: I absolutely love that answer. There's so much uh, value in your reply to, to that question I asked. You. So let's go into the specific challenges that you faced in adapting your skill set from architecture. You know, you studied for a very very long time, and then you pivoted into the tech sector. You know, so so you know, because there'll be people listening to this thinking. I want some of uh, what Natalia is having. I want my 45% increase. You know, so so I'm interested. I think this is a real key question here, you know, adapting your skills. Yeah, the challenges.
1: Uh, Again, great question, Jason. I just enjoy how you kind of structure this conversation. I think that there are positive things and there are things that are a bit less positive the positive thing is the architects they are builders they're creators they're visionary and also very often they're generalists because we need to be good at so many different things to be able to speak with the client their language to be able to understand the the site or the typology of the project right so we need to learn a little bit about a lot of things So when you start running a company or being in tech, you kind of still need to transition into mentality of being able to be open and kind of have these things on your radar and pick up on the small signals, which is very similar to how we approach to start the project. The challenge, as I kind of touched on the previous question, essentially is that for some reason, we like to increase what we do, like we we, we want to submit a small package, but then we like, oh, let's also add this rendering and then this diagram and and, and maybe no one will look at it. Client doesn't give a shit. like no one cares, but we condition to put this pressure on ourselves. And I don't know if a lot of people will relate with that, but that's how I felt always. It's like, I, I'm not enough, I need to do a little bit more and then a little bit more. And especially if you're working in the firm, A lot of times this pressure would be also created by the principal or by your manager. And there's always like an expectation of of you have to know everything. Things need to be perfect. And we almost like perpetually keep like propagating it, going to the next firm. And now we have junior people helping us and we do the same to them. And it just keeps going this way. And once you come to a tech company, you very quickly realize that you need to subtract, you need to di- dial down, you need to be agile, you need to work in very short time frames. Because with tech, you can't spend months and months and months building one feature, and then you show it to the user, and the user is like, I don't give a shit. Like this feature doesn't matter to me. In a tech company, you want to very quickly iterate, time box all your activities. And when I say working backwards, it's almost have your end goal in mind and then see how you can get there with the minimum amount of time with the minimum number of activities. For architecture, yes, we know how the submission package looks like, but yet the nature of profession encourages us to always do more or describe more, add more things. And I think that this is something I personally struggle with as well. How to not balloon the scope yeah but try to control it and contain it and focus on the fact that you are delivering value to a customer you're not here for the sake of producing the drawings the end result is what is going to be built or what your customer or your client going to be using and i think that's that's the biggest challenge that I'm kind of facing myself every day. That's almost like a big shift that I need to do and change this mentality of like increasing things we need to do to decreasing the number of things we need to do.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely right. And my experience with 10 years before I moved into the nuclear sector, partners, directors will go out and they'll take the brief and then they won't really uh, communicate that brief effectively to a young um, training architects and say well let's break that down what does the client actually really want and let's have a look and let's assign the hours to it and do no more than that because the client is paying for no more than that and if we spend a bit more time right up front getting that brief correct and understanding the hours to deliver each of them deliverables we have a chance but the problem is like you said it's um we're taught this um mentality from maybe at university or but or maybe it's it just filters into practice and that's the way we've always done it taking a much more of a business approach definitely is 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 key so i love yeah. how you're looking at the tech sector and you're adapting that to to architecture
1: on the positive side uh we have plenty of great qualities as architects being able to see things holistically and almost like slice through industries, through disciplines, being this like prime consultant in your mentality, truly, being this master builder, it's a huge advantage. Uh, having this fundamental training, uh, technical plus artistic. We studied a lot of we did a lot of philosophy studies, we wrote, we draw, we drew. And I think this is a huge advantage. I think it's just a matter of seeing the potential and identifying things we do have rather than things we don't have. But definitely architects have a lot of egos. So if you ever want to transition to a different profession, the egos will have to go.
0: (laughs) Did you encounter any resistance or skepticism from colleagues or peers when making this shift and how have you navigated um, or well and or addressed these concerns with them?
1: When I was already at a startup, not my current startup, but the companies to work for, I hired a team of about 25 architects and designers, and I had to interview hundreds of people. They were all local here in Toronto because some of the projects were in Canada, so we needed to know local codes. And so I would Interview them, people would be generally very curious because, again, the salary was higher. So it was easy to bring them to the interview. But then once we, they were at the interview, this, they would ask me like the most weird questions and almost don't answer mine. And sometimes, you know, the conversation would go really weird because people would see a startup or something which is, again, not pure architecture, but and they will, would be very skeptical. And a lot of people did not proceed or did not reply, simply because it was not pure architecture, pure construction, but it was in between. And I, I, I was shocked, to be honest. Like especially seeing the people coming for the interview. Clearly, they're very curious of earning more, but they were not ready to change their mentality. They were not ready to, to like make the switch or you know take a risk. And and just and in terms of industry, I think. When I would go for events and you know talk to other architects or designers, I would tell them that I'm switching. They just try to ask more follow-up questions. And then from there, it either go it either goes to they're super curious because now they wanna know more and do it themselves, especially when they hear about you know the other benefits. Or it can go to direction where people be like, it's good for you, I don't really get it. It's not for me, it's gonna keep doing what I'm doing and let's leave it at that.
0: And then I think we should move on to um, elaborating on your transfer, transferable skills from architecture that you believe have been the most valuable in your tech career, and how have they set you apart from, I guess, um, I guess from you know people who've gone and studied pure tech um, technology. How do you stand out amongst your peers?
1: So I think this is the question where I would like to hopefully encourage the colleagues and peers to take the leap of faith if they ever ever choose to. And essentially say that things are way better than we think they are typically. And uh, there are so many skills that I think coming from architecture, I can leverage and I can bring on the table. And now working with software engineers, Who are very technical and creating those um, back-end systems, being able to take a text or the requirements and turn it into something tangible, that's what we do. I almost treat the creation of a tech product as a creation of a building. Once the architect receives a functional program, It's just the lines of words and numbers and it doesn't have any substance to it, right? So very often we would start with not even like inspiration images from the client or from the municipality or the government. It's just a book. It's a binder. It's some like faceless, completely bland text, right? And then with our own internal forces kind of looking in, we have to like start extracting this creativity, the vision, the looks, the feels, the colors, all of this, and turn it into something that then the client can walk through and touch and we can present and we can talk about it, we can inspire, we can talk to users. And it's almost the same way I see it here. So how do you take a bunch of text and also technical product requirements, which is very similar to functional program, because essentially you try to describe what you're in with words, And then give it to engineers together with the product managers to develop and build see it as a design process from napkin sketch to full set of construction documents and every time when we hit a milestone in product development i almost can in my head align it with the stage of the project and that really helps me to transfer my skills to the, to the now product development, because essentially, yes, we did the first iteration and, you know, it's very kind of uh, duct tapey. There's a lot of, you know, things, I don't you know, it's a schematic design. Now we're going to do version two, it's a design development, something that users can already use, but then it's not hundred percent there. Maybe, you know, we can send it for compliance, which is your building permit. And then, you know, I kind of like try to, as much as I can find those parallels, And apply them and almost in my head like okay this looks like that this looks like that and the fact that you have to again take the text and be able to think beyond just kind of your day-to-day but think long-term and create something that has not been done before i think that's something that architects are really really good at and that's something that they can leverage like 1000 percent
0: Wonderful. I'm going to talk about expectations now before you kind of, I guess, made the transitions. How has your experience in the tech industry compared to your expectations before making the transition? What, what did you think it, it, it was, it would be? And then were there any surprises along the way?
1: Great way to reflect on the past experiences. I didn't have much expectation. I'm the type of person who kind of go and see it for yourself you know, I never worked in tech, I didn't really know, you know, I read a lot of books about startups, so I did understand certain qualities like speed, being able to pivot and change very quickly, being able to adapt, being very open-minded, so I was aware, but it was like book knowledge, right, not necessarily kind of like a street knowledge, I'd say. When I went in for the first time, I think I realized that the speed was even higher than I thought, and the pivoting was more dramatic or more drastic than I would imagine. So I will explain it. So the first one, the speed, you know, architecture firms, they also have crazy deadlines and crazy speed kind of constraints and, and requirements, right? But here it's slightly different. So for architecture firm, I almost think about, we have six months we need to deliver the package for the first three months. We are like doing the, vision boards and doing some, you know, sessions together. But, but then we are realizing that the schedule gets really compressed and then it kind of picks up towards the end and then people work crazy hours. And then finally the submission here, it's almost like you are the last two weeks before your submission, but it's all the time like that and not necessarily in a bad way. It's just a matter of being able to make quick decisions. That has a lot of impact. You have to be quick on your feet. So you have to quickly think and see. Okay, now if I say yes, there's going to be a decision that leads me to this. I say no, it leads me to that. You make these quick calculations. You have to, you don't have time to you know go and sit with the committee and sit with your team and it, like it. Time is death to startups. So you, you can't do that. You just simply don't have the time. And I, I learned to appreciate it because in architecture field, I feel sometimes there are a lot of time being wasted. And that's partially why we started this uh, tech company, because many times I saw the problem, productivity, inefficiency in architecture office being a huge problem where people would try to find some design artifacts and they would spend hours looking for it which then would create this constraint and this pressure towards the deadline simply because things were not organized. We don't have a project management software. We don't have a task list. We don't have this. We don't have that. And then people just like stuck with this situation. And the second part about uh, the pivoting or changing direction, I think that this is something that architects I saw struggle with. Architects, We are not going to build to do that. Right. We, we, we used to the fact that some projects they take years, you know, the largest projects I ever worked on, we were in the master plan phase for three years, just master plan. And that's the kind of mentality that built in on us. So when you are a tech startup and then today you're working on a hospital and tomorrow they're like, Oh, let's all turn. Now we're going to be selling donuts. Like for architects, it's very, very hard to adopt. But I think if we can't do if we can go through this transformation, I think it would be very beneficial for us to see and kind of with the fine comb to go through how we do things. Do we do them efficiently? Do is this the right way to do it? So if you have a like chance to have a hard look at yourself, I think that would benefit all of the professions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you there. Um, I think everyone listening to this who's in architecture is probably thinking, oh, my word, this is so inefficient here. This is so inefficient here. What if I did to um, what could I do to um, make things more efficient? And I love what you said about the time scales, that that sort of focus of things feeling like it's in the last two weeks um, all of the time. But you can make fast decisions. Really love that. So as a professional who has navigated both industries, what advice do you have for others considering a similar move from architecture to technology? If the salary ain't enough, I don't know what
1: is. (laughs) Jason, I think for me, another thing that I didn't mention earlier is uh, scalability. Similar to what I already mentioned about my own practice, I very quickly, I realized the only way for me to grow is to offer more hours to my clients, meaning I need to get more people on my team. And then on top of my 24 hours a day, now I'm going to have eight hours or seven hours someone else helping me. At the end of the day, it's going to be same story. We're going to be selling now more hours for, for money, right? There's no exponential growth. There is no scalability. It becomes a bit of a brick and mortar type of business, right? And for me personally, again, if I can, we don't know if I'm going to be successful in this tech journey. But the, the idea is that there is opportunity to make huge impact with your decisions, with what you offer to your users, with the product that you bring to the world, if you get it right. And then the growth would be, at first very moderate but then it has an opportunity potential to grow exponentially and make huge impact on a lot of people's life in our case it's architects because we are, we are uh, helping other architects to gain productivity i know that it's a huge problem i suffered i lived through this problem myself and for me it's very Familiar. It's not something that I've been told. I know it exists. I know there are things that we can do better. I know that there is a productivity to be gained. And especially when I talk to a lot of architects, they they want to quit the profession. And a lot of times they frustrated with the way things are done in the office, the way things are done day to day. And I was like, what a shame. Someone who went through this torture of architecture school now want to quit simply because when they do their job and they do it well day to day, there are no tools to enable them, there are no help for them. They feel lost. They feel like they're drowning. That's really why we started a company in the first place. Very important to focus on things that you have, not the thing not on things that you don't have. Let's say read a job description or some sort of like you know requirement and you feel like, you know, I don't have 10% or 30%, sometimes even 50% of those skills. Don't get discouraged from not starting a conversation with these people. Don't think about your skills or your experience or your potential like something static. It's it's a dynamic process. All the skills you can gain, you can learn the software, you can learn how to do shape up, working backwards, agile. You can do all that. It's not a problem, especially if you gain the fundamental education again as architecture. And I think that trying to sell yourself a little better. Architects are sometimes not good at it. And again, unfortunately coming from architecture school, I have another story for you. It's a way to leverage your experience in a way that actually can benefit someone that adds value to a tech company. Because I am sure a lot of people have many, many things they can offer. They just never talk about it or they just never even think about it from that angle shifting your perspective a little bit, thinking about things that maybe not your day-to-day, but maybe they can become your day-to-day. Story that I wanted to say about architecture school. I think that one thing that I I always felt is missing is the sales component. Because for architects, it's almost like sales are dirty. Don't touch it. Only bad people do sales. (laughs) Even in architecture school, I was just thinking about it the other day, since year one of my Bachelor of Architecture, I presented the project in this way. We would design a building, you know, playground, whatever we're doing over the course of, you know, weeks and months and whatever. And then the final presentation at that time, was never a formal presentation you would never actually present your work or speak to your work you would print your work you build a model you would leave it in the room with 70 other people and then you would leave the room and the team of about six to eight to ten professors would go into the room they would spend hours there and then they would exit and all the students would come in and see their grades so whatever you want to say has to be on that board and this model, you never have a chance to present it. And that was four and a half years of doing it this way. The only presentation was the final thesis. And, you know, by that time, no one's presentated presenting skills became any better in the four and a half years. So by the time I came to my masters, which was extremely different, it was a lot of critical thinking, a lot of analysis, No functional program, no requirements. You have to go to site and see what's wrong with the site, see how you can improve it. And I remember so vividly our first class where we're sitting, not at the desks like uh, in my other university, but it's like a a large square table table, and everybody's kind of around this table. And the dean was like, so guys, this is the site. What do you think? And I'm like, I don't know what I think. No one taught me to think. You give me the functional program, I execute it, that's it, I'm an architect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, that was a huge challenge for me to shift. And I think that having this mentality of being able to present your work, being able to present yourself, being able to... Sometimes you have to pitch it to the client. Sometimes you have to pitch yourself or your past projects. There is no shame in it. Like We shouldn't be hiding it under the carpet like someone else did it. Feature it, talk about it, show how passionate you are. There's nothing wrong with it. And then that's something that I really try to practice uh, now in the tech company. But it's hard because it's so many years people are telling you like, oh, like don't oversell, don't talk about yourself too much, don't overpresent, don't over-communicate. And it's almost like now I need to unlearn this before I can learn how to sell effectively
0: wonderful That that's a great story i absolutely agree with you on this and we have the crits and that is your moment to sell your design for example um and i always am i always used to imagine the clients there and are they going to choose my design but there's never any training on how to to deliver that crit you know mm-hmm. it's kind of you just need to suddenly know how to do it. You know, see, I've seen a hell of a lot of bad credits because I do go into universities and do a bit of that. Wonderful. You know, how do you perceive the intersection between architecture and technology evolving in the future? And what opportunities do you see for professionals with, for example, this dual background that you have? Are you sort of best placed for the future?
1: I think that the future of this profession I see more integrated with technology. Today, I still think that we're using tech very little compared to what we could be doing or what's available to us. And that's partially because I still think that there is a resistance transitioning to more digital, relying on, you know, maybe cloud solutions or, you know, something a bit more advanced. I still think that uh, there is a lot of practices that function in a very kind of conventional way. And when I say conventional, I don't mean marking on paper and doing the, the, you know, red lines. There's nothing wrong with it. I think conventional in their mentality or their mindset that, oh, we've done things this way. Let's continue doing it this way. and whatever's happening around, I'm just going to, you know, cover myself and this is all kind of not touching me. And I think this is very wrong because while we are doing this, other industries are skyrocketing and going into, you know, literally space. And I think that was partially why I also wanted to try being in tech because I felt like architecture is too slow to adapt new things. And I, I wanted to grow. I wanted to learn. I wanted to develop professionally, but I almost like I couldn't because there's always like so much limitation. We have to do this. We have to deadline. Do uh, we don't have time to do R&D. We don't have time to implement. Let's just do, 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 create, produce, produce. And there is no innovation. So I think that they're going to be more software support. And when I say it, I don't mean IT or BIM manager. I think the larger firms would engage more software engineers if they can afford them, if they have a proper CTO or manager to run this cluster. And those software engineers in the bigger firms, they would be addressing interoperability issues and kind of stitching in those processes writing custom tools and uh, trying to help architects work in more efficiently. In the same time, the firms who does not have the cash to pay for software engineers, they would be almost having like an external software engineering unit that will help and provide those services to them, do a custom software for their own use, for their own needs, for the w- way they do things. And I think a lot of architects would need to know how to code, which we see in other countries. Canada, unfortunately, not there yet. And I think in general, if I'm not going into too much of a detail, more like speaking from a high level, it's a shift of mentality that's like, okay, I'm an architect. I'm now drawing a building. It has to be even more multidisciplinary, but in this instance, it has to be more tech enabled. We have to be open-minded to let AI help us. No one tells you AI will draw a building for you. No one is even close to doing that. But why can't you let AI sort through your database and help you pull the reference quickly? Go enable the day-to-day task list. You know, let it it co-pilot you. Let it suggest you a uh, detail that you already have in your data- database when you're drawing. Why can't we do that? Why a lot of architects tell me day to day is that, oh, my data is not secure. This is, you know, going to be a data breach. This is going to leak. AI is going to steal my information. And I'm like, what are you been talking about? Like, there's so much potential here. It's like, you know, uh, riding a horse or riding an automobile, right? Like, there was this transition. Eventually, we will get to this automobile mentality, It's just some people who will get there sooner, they will have a huge advantage because by the time others will start to catch up, those firms would have already excellent processes. They would have everything streamlined. They would have, you know, 10x productivity of their staff. They would be just able to leverage way more projects and do way better designs. And I think that the practices who continue to resist and again, I'm not trying to say now everybody has to like have AI everything and you know AI is God. Not at all. I'm more talk- talking about being able to open, to start this conversation, not try to say, oh, AI is bad, technology is bad, we're just going to do things the way we always did it. I think being able to be open-minded, be able to be flexible, and sometimes drop your ego a little bit. Because mm-hmm. this is one thing that architects are really good at, keeping their ego really, really high.
0: (laughs) Again, really great insight. I've always thought that the co-creation or like a co-pilot to uh, assist you, for example, is your building code code, compliant? Could we see that in the future that we uh, run a model? um, It's set to say, understands a set of parameters um, and, and, and it's just a thing we can keep running and if we change the design it, it, it can check that we're code compliant i still think you need to know whether your building is code compliant and, and understand that the program the ai might not be absolutely spot on but it could really assist us in so many ways and that's just one example but in terms of work culture and dynamics what notable differences? Have you observed between architecture and tech industries and how have you adjusted?
1: This is such an important question. And I think in this specific instance, architects have so much to learn from the tech industry. So what I really liked when I first started working in tech and what we are actively implementing today uh, in the new company that we are running is... All sorts of checkpoints. We have daily stand-ups, which is 15-minute stand-up. You very quickly, very concisely should be able to say what you're working on today. And very consciously, you need to stop a person if they're going on a tangent and say, parking lot this conversation, we're going to get back, let's schedule another meeting, we talk about it. Stand-up is one of the most effective ways to control the scope creep and misalignment between teams. Misalignment between, you know, principals or uh, the chief executives. Second thing is one on one check ins, where the lead of the team checks with their team members weekly, bi weekly, monthly. It's a chat, which is, you know, it's not a long conversation, it could be half an hour, it could be one hour, where there is no set topic but the person who is on the team can basically have the time reserved to have concerns addressed with their lead. Maybe they want to talk about, I don't know, their trip that they took last month. It doesn't really matter, but I think that those checkpoints, they almost take the pressure off. You know, when there's a lot of steam and you raise the lead and the steam just comes out, right? If there is something building up, if the person is unhappy maybe they're on their own project the wrong team those checkpoints with their lead would really help to either address it or maybe just smooth that that sens- that sensitivity or that kind of like something that's boiling inside of them we do have retros which is retrospectives you have every two weeks meaning that you have to answer in front of yourself your team what went well what went wrong? How can we do it better? And then you tell to your colleagues if they did something really great. They you know, finished on time. They did a great rendering. In our case, it's more related to technology, product. We have demos where, you know, rain or shine, you have to present to your team what the hell you've been working on. This is a huge checkpoint because if someone was not productive or was not, you know, uh, very aligned with the goal or very, you know, transparent maybe about what they're working on truly, or maybe they deviated from the task very quickly. You will be able to track it. No one is going to be working on some details that doesn't even matter or they're wrong. Because if you have demo every week or every two weeks, you very quickly going to say, no, 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 no. This is all garbage. Let's just go back and start again. And I think that Uh, We do have very strict policy on the no meetings day. It's basically one day a week where there's no meetings. It's all productive, kind of uh, heads down work. Having a shape up approach, which is trying to outline similar to what you were saying before, Jason, trying to outline the requirements before we start working, not assuming that we are all on the same page. And once we adhere to those requirements. Yes, we might need to change something, but fundamentally, we just stick with it. We're not changing our scope halfway through, and then, you know, it's one day is this, another day is something else, and then everybody's confused. No one knows what they're doing anymore. That's very important. And I wish more companies would implement at least some of those practices.
0: I do too. And I, I will say there's one thing that we do do in my company and we call it a different thing it's called line of sight it's a line of sight it's exactly 15 minutes standing up saying what the issues are if there's any blockers mm-hmm. uh, but I think you've gone much much further and I, I there's so much great value in there that people can take from it and implement that into their business so I really thank you for that that <laughs> um, that insight there so considering the broader context of your career journey so far what lessons have you learned that you believe would be valuable for aspiring architects or individuals thinking about uh, shifting into the tech sector
1: i think that the most important takeaway that so far after doing this for 17 years i took is i wish i got my hands dirty sooner i wish i went and worked and when i say worked i'm not talking about working full-time for income but being exposed to the architecture office to the processes very early in architecture school and the second thing is being able to connect with your industry connect with people have I was very fortunate to, to have very knowledgeable, successful mentors. I think finding those mentors early on, people who are way more experienced than than you and they have this perspective of the world that you are at a young age not able to capture yet. It's almost like seeing a bit of a into the future and being able to talk to someone who can give you a very unbiased, sometimes non very direct perspective of the world and just give you kind of like something to think about, some food for thought. I think that's very important. And it could be, you know, a business mentor, an architect mentor, artistic mentor, whatever is your thing. I think another thing is... uh, Try to talk to people and uh, I think architects tend to hang out with architects a lot and it's very easy to talk to someone who speaks your language and you can be, you know, throwing those uh, little jokes or little comments very freely and everybody's on the same page and then all of a sudden we go outside and no one understands what we're talking about. So those moments should be more frequent. So you, Recalibrate yourself. You don't end up brewing only in the soup of designers, and you know, you end up not being able to talk to your clients because if you speak the same language to your clients, your client look at you and be like, what the hell are you talking about? What is all of this? <laughs> so I think it, it's all come, it all comes down to being open-minded, being resourceful in the sense that you can find the ways to communicate with the world and learn. And I think also for me traveling and uh, trying to get maybe an internship or some sort of like work abroad just to see how it's done in different cultures. I was very fortunate to have an internship in Spain during my master's. One of my professors uh, offered for me to join uh, his practice during the summertime. And I think It fundamentally changed me. It was uh, three months that I spent in Spain and everything was different from what I saw every day when I went to work to how we did things and how absolutely different the practice was run. Very artistically, very open, and at the same time, very technical. Uh, So try to gain those experiences. Try to expose yourself to as many things as you can in a very short period of time, which helps you to make a decision on what you want to do quicker.
0: Love that. Absolutely fantastic. And uh, my only final question to to you relates around you and what you do for your work-life balance. How do you de-stress?
1: Oh, that's a big one, Jason. (laughs) Uh, So I play soccer once a week. I'm no pro athlete. Uh, Actually, trying to improve my skills every week but it does help a lot because i feel like that is one hour in in a week where my brain does not function it's only my body and you know the skills that i already have and just kind of coordination and just kind of trying to uh be fully present in the game which is very restorative because you kind of like use your body rather than your brain, which for architects typically we always very, very on, right? I do like running. So I use running uh, or going to a gym. I run in the gym because, you know, Canada is cold. Uh, I don't run in winter time as a, a bit of a break. So let's say if I know that I need to work late today, so I would go and exercise around 5 p.m. And then by the time I am back from the gym, I am full of energy. I feel like I can do another full day of work. Not always works this way, but a lot of times I almost like generate a bit of energy for myself as I'm working out. I think for me, traveling helps a lot. And traveling does two things. It's a restoration and it's also inspiration. I think some of my best projects that I ever created were done right after I came from vacation. Because I was so fresh. My my brain was so open and so kind of like porous that those ideas, they just appear out of nowhere. It seems like out of nowhere. I think for creative professionals, one thing that is very hard to do, but I think very important if you can, is to get bored. By the time you turn off all your devices, all these distractions, and you kind of sit... And to the point where you're like, what do I do with myself? How do I, you know, how do I, you know, stimulate myself again? Because it's all about simulation nowadays, right? You have to almost force yourself to not do that and reach the state where your brain starts wondering and your mind starts wondering. And you just want to sit there and see what comes up. And I absolutely love this practice. It's very hard to do. But I think if you can, out of this boredom, absolutely amazing things can emerge. Sometimes I have the wildest ideas in those moments.
0: That's wonderful. And it's so hard to tell the employer that if you're staring out (laughs) of the window for half an hour, I'm actually working. (laughs) You know, know? natalia thank you so much for um you know your contribution to this uh, episode on series three uh thank you so much for your time i wish you all of the success in your your company um your startup um yeah just just wonderful to talk to you today
1: thank you very much jason thank you for your time and thank you for Great, great, great questions, and uh, I hope the listeners can, uh, you know, get some value from them and uh, be open to build their new journey. Maybe the book. architect.